Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service and without the visibility that Robot gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. Alright, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. You know what time it is, friends? It is JS Party time. And I am Jared. I'm excited to be here. I'm joined by a special guest. I also have a very special panelist that everybody loves. Divya is here. Divya, what's up? Hey, hey. So Divya, I hear you've been working on an introductory tag noise that you can use. Yeah, I still haven't perfected it. I, I still, I think it's a work in progress. Okay. So hey, hey is just a temporary a placeholder? Yes, it's a, it's a temporary placeholder. All right, you work on that, get back to us. The special guests we have, and we're super excited, of course, to have the CTO of NPM here, Ahmad Nasri. Ahmad, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, excited. So it's kind of a funny story because you and I met four years ago, almost to the day on the changelog, and you had such an interesting backstory. We didn't used to do backstories on the changelog, but I heard yours. And just, I think that probably took maybe a third of the show. We were there to talk about Kong and Mashape and APIs. And we ended up talking about how you came to be where you are. It actually, I think that episode inspired an entire segment for a year or so. We, we were doing origin stories with everybody. And it uh, turns out not everybody has as good of an origin story as you do. So we ended up saying, well, sometimes it was hit or miss, but we hit such a home run with your story that we thought we'd ask everybody that question. And uh, eventually we, we moved away from it. But awesome origin story for you. And I will just submit to everybody, if you're interested in hearing about his background, go back and listen to the Changelog episode 185, which we'll link to. Very, very fascinating stuff. But now you're at NPM, so uh, catch me up. It's been a few years. You're at NPM, you're CTO there. What, what have you been up to? Oh, wow. Lots to catch up on. I guess the kind of journey for me since, since we last chatted, uh, not to revisit all the history there, but uh, I kind of did this thing where I went from startup to enterprise and then back to startup again and back to enterprise again and the kind of the careers I took on. And the reason I was doing that is I wanted to kind of get exposure to the quote unquote other side. So, you know, when you're in the developer tooling space or you're in the, um, you know, software development and open source space, I, I, I kind of get 
self-conscious about, you know, how deep into our own kind of echo chamber are we or how, mm. how much on the bleeding edge are we? Uh, that sometimes we forget about people who are, you know, perhaps stuck in systems that can't be modernized or technologies that are still catching up or, you know, doing the day-to-day grueling work of trying to, you know, break down the monoliths or trying to, you know, operationalize an, an, an old system or an IT, IT infrastructure. Um, so I did this thing where I kind of went full, you know, 180 to the other side, and I went and worked at a telecom for, for about a couple of years. Okay. You know, leading a team of, I think we had about 450 people at the time, just trying to do digital transformation and modernization of, you know, telecom technology, especially when it comes to uh, e-commerce operations and online uh, interactions with the customers. Uh, and that was kind of fascinating, you know, knowing how the, you know, the, the sausage is made type of thing. You know, as we all carry smartphones and seeing how and seeing use the internet and you know seeing how the ISP systems and the uh, telecom operations actually work uh, was kind of fascinating and interesting. But it was an interesting journey to go back into like the enterprise space and seeing the challenges of the enterprise developer and the the kind of level of velocity that teams like that operate on versus you know folks in the open source space, folks in the modern technology spaces, and the you know cloud enabled infrastructure technologies. To me, that was a very good educational space that I went through, uh, kind of achieved a lot of things there. And then, you know, I, I still got the itch of going back and doing, you know, the bleeding edge, the modern thing. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, enter NPM, which I basically built my career around JavaScript and Node uh, and NPM in general. And the tool sets that, you know, the NPM team and the eco- ecosystem created has really facilitated my career and a lot of the projects I built and created. When I started chatting with the NPM team about what their needs are and what they wanted to do, it was a very interesting opportunity that I couldn't say no to in actually being part of making the difference in developers' lives and you know, helping people get the same value that I've gotten out of the ecosystem and uh, the, the community that NPM fostered and created. How long have you been back? I've been at NPM since May of uh, this year, and it's been a very interesting journey. We've been working hard on you know, a lot of areas and things that we needed to catch up on to serve the community better. But the thing that I'm focused on in my role is helping the team itself and helping the company itself and, you know, being structured and being operational in a way that can better serve the open source community and, uh, you know, our paying customers that rely on us every day for their delivery of their JavaScript packages. So it hasn't been that long, but it still feels like it's been a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm just looking forward to what's next. Tough question, but if you could distill down those couple of years in the enterprise telecom space, like what was, did you have major revelations or takeaways or like things that you despised? What would be like the biggest summary of like your time and experience there? Well, let's just say I never thought I'll get gray hair and I left (laughs) with a lot. Uh, (laughs) What I said earlier is I think there's a bigger disconnect in you know, I'm going to say we, the collective we in the open source community and, you know, conferences and events like where I am now in Montreal at Node.js Interactive, when we come together and talk about technology, talk about tooling, talk about practices and patterns and standards, that is not the world that most enterprise development is in. And as much as the enterprise developer or, you know, people who happen to work in enterprises and our software developers are as interested in those topics and are trying to, you know, be engaged and be active in it, the boundaries and the limitations that the environment and the circumstances that they're in uh, prevent them from doing that. You know, you and I talked four or five years ago about microservices and APIs and, you mm-hmm. know, RESTful services. And guess what? Majority of enterprises are still nowhere cl- close to that. They're trying, but they're nowhere close. 
Meanwhile, the industry is now talking about serverless and functions as a service and modularization and all that kind of stuff, right? So there's, there's a gap and there's a divide that's only getting bigger and bigger. And that's a thing that I'm always kind of keeping in, in my mind, especially in my role now at NPM, where you know, the JavaScript community, as rich and vibrant as it is, you know, we, we talk about all these modern tools and frameworks and libraries and methodologies. And guess what? There are people still running jQuery, uh, still running Dojo version one, uh, still building UIs with Sensha UI, uh, because that's the enterprise adoption lifecycle. They've, they've adopted something. There's a sunk cost there. And these people are potentially suffering because of those things, but they're still working. They're still operational. Testament to the, the, the open source technologies that we've created all these years ago, that they're still operational. They're still working. But now the gap between topics that concerned that developer that's building things in Sencha UI or, you know, old jQuery UI, and they're stuck with it because that's the enterprise system. The topics that they're concerned with are not the same topics that, you know, somebody who's building modern React headless applications and deploying them with Electron every day. That gap is becoming bigger and bigger. And, you know, I see that gap every day, especially in my role as well at NPM, where, you know, the concerns of the one side are not necessarily achieving the solutions or the concerns for the other side. So considering that and the fact that NPM is also starting to do a lot more enterprise work, how do you bridge that gap? Because it generally tends to be if you're a developer-focused tool, which NPM very much is, you want to focus on the developer experience and often developers don't pay for that. But you also want to target enterprise users who will actually bring in the money and their use cases are very different. How do you bridge that gap then? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say you know, NPM is targeting more enterprise-focused things. I think we were uniquely positioned in that middle ground where we know very well the experience of the open source ecosystem and the developer there, and we understand it very well. And coming up with the solutions that the open source community relies on and needs, and then making that translation to the enterprise developer or small to medium-sized company that are still stuck in some older technologies, there is value to be given to those developers and those teams as well. And I think that's a very good place to be because then you can see both sides of the equation. And while you're you know, learning and adapting and helping the open source community, you're providing direct value to the you know, quote-unquote enterprise developer or the old school systems or some old IT infrastructure that they're still catching up on. And that's really what people, you know, when it comes down to econ- economics of it, that's what people want to pay for. They want to pay to catch up and get out of the, the hole that they may be in or get over the technical debt or the, you know, the hump that they might be stuck in. So that's valuable uh, impact that you can measure in dollars. And, you know, there, there lies business opportunities and ecosystem opportunities to serve those communities. Yeah, that's, that's a very optimistic look at it because I often find, and you see this in various tech companies where it's very much like as a startup, the focus is on developer experience, making sure that that is very well done. And then the moment it comes to like, we need to now make money, there's almost a like a 180 shift away from developer experience into this completely other enterprise. And oftentimes developer experience tends to lag behind because they're like, we have enterprise use cases, which are very unique, which oftentimes developers don't have that scale or that ability to, they're not dealing with the same problems. So like, sure, we can always adapt, but oftentimes it's almost like two different perspectives. And so that tends to happen where you see a startup who's like very great for developer experience. The moment they focus on enterprise, it's like a movement away from that. And I know like you mentioned a little bit about making sure that you can adapt solutions, but it almost feels to me, maybe this is a very negative view, but it almost feels inevitable. The moment you start talking about enterprise, there tends to be that move away from developer experience. And I just want to know like, 
from your perspective, how do you make sure that you're, because sometimes there tends to be like, developers can almost see that they like notice they're like oh npm is focusing on enterprise now and is that how will that impact us so like how do you have because it tends to also be a communication thing and how do you mm-hmm. you know do that well i think it's two-parter part number one is it depends on the attitude or the kind of intent in trying to solve enterprise problems or trying to sell products to software teams as opposed to you know creating solutions that open source developers can use and if your, your intent there is to help them modernize and get into the modern world, then your incentives will not, will not be to just create solutions that keep them where they are, which I think the pattern that you're pointing to is, yes, there's a lot of technology companies who kind of focus on solutions for large scale or enterprise or whatever, um, and then they inevitably fall into the strap of doing what the customer asks for or building the thing that, you know, is the gap so that the customer pays for it, uh, but they're not acting as the advocates. They're not acting as the, here's the best practices. So if you're, if you're trying to go into that space and uh, acting as both the advocate and a solution provider, then you can help them get out of the, you know, the technical debts that they may be in or the legacy systems that they might be on and help shepherd them towards a future where they may not need your tool or may not need your products or even better yet, they will use your product more effectively and use your uh, technology more effectively. So that's the one part. The other part is, you know, there's also like, it's not a one-way directional uh, learning experience of like everything open source is doing is the enterprise needs to catch up. There's actually the other path as well. There's a lot of enterprise use cases and things at scale, whether it's in collaboration of software development modes and practices, whether it's in technology and system design, whether it's in scale and operations of technology that the open source community can also learn from. So again, being in the middle of that, you can take those lessons and give them back to the open source community. So you're, you're, as, long as, you're, as long as you position yourself as a shepherd for two-way communication and value exchange, I think you, you would be successful, successful in the developer tooling space. So, you know, that's kind of the approach I would take uh, in terms of solving a business problem, but also trying to be an advocate for better practices and bringing in the scale and operational constraints that enterprises have and teaching, you know, the small team of five or six open source developers the value of those practices or the value of those scaling operations, because then that makes its way into the open source technology as well. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It is so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month. We host Changelog on Linode cloud servers and we love it. We get great 24 seven support. Zeus like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com changelog. ways we do things around here is we just get interesting people on our shows and then we talk about what they like to talk about. So first of all, shout out to uh, Amal Hussein and thanks to her for suggesting this episode, friend of ours and yours as well. We got hooked up with you and I said, what do you want to talk about? What's been on your mind? Because whatever you're interested in, I'm interested in. And the thing that you've been talking about and thinking about a lot lately is uh, modular software architecture and patterns or ways that you can achieve or reproduce or migrate to modular software architecture. So let's tee that up 
this topic. From your perspective, first, let's just start very basic for those who aren't familiar with the idea of modular software. Can you define it for us? Tell us what modular means in your perspective. So I think this is a nuanced approach, but there's a number of different ways people interpret modularity and modular software in general. You know, especially in the JavaScript world, when, when, when you use the word module or modular, people will either think of a package or package resolution methodology, as in with ESM or otherwise. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about when I talk about modularity, I'm talking to the age-old kind of philosophy that, that's what started with the Unix philosophy all the way back in 1978 or something like that, where it talks about how you write code and how you write software and some principles around that. And I think the, if I recall correctly, like the, the four or five principles there was that, you know, in order to make modular software, number one is you make each program do one thing really well. So everything has one job and one job only. Uh, I think number two was, uh, you know, there's like an, an, an output-input exchange. So like every program should become the, every, every output of every program should become the input of, to another. So if you've ever used Unix or Linux and you pipe operations between command lines, you're very familiar with those kind of approaches. Uh, it's very, again, this is from 1978, so very early days of computing. Um, mm-hmm. But the things that I, I find most valuable, especially in the context of software as a, as a social practice that we all do, the tools and the way you build your tools and products uh, and all these principles should be tailored to make sure that you lighten the programming task to other maintainers. Uh, and the idea that, you know, everything should be easily maintained and repurposed by developers other than the people who created it. So we would not be successful in the software industry if the person who wrote the code the first time is the only person who's going to be able to maintain it forever. That's why we have documentation, that we have practices, we have guidelines of how to actually make software repurposable and shareable by others. And that's why we have patterns like forking and cloning and, sh- and sharing and sharing code. Because the whole point of all of this is that at the end of the day, software is about people. And you want to make it so that, you know, some of these practices around modularity, so you want to make it so that it's easy for others to come and repurpose or refactor or use your software without having to go through, you know, tomes of manuals and understanding all your individual authors kind of purpose and and knowledge. And I think one other one that, you know, we all suffer from every day is, you know, one of the principles of the Unix philosophy was everything should be designed in a way that you can just throw it away and rebuild it, right? And as you know, like in in a monolithic worldview, that's not such an easy thing to do. But as you become, as you focus on building smaller and smaller units of code and build them in a modular fashion, that is, everything does one thing very well, every part of the program becomes an input to another, you know, everything can be uh, rebuilt and thrown away, and most importantly, it's built in a way that others can just come in, understand it, do any changes or fixes, and and move away Mm -hmm. without having to spend years and sync up with the original author on everything. So, like, to me, those are kind of the key philosophy areas where, like, the, the, again, the Unix philosophy kind of did this very well back in 1978. Um... But in today's world, we haven't really matured that enough. So we talk a lot about, you know, especially in the JavaScript world, talk a lot about packages and sharing and libraries and code. Um, But we still have these kind of like big monolithic libraries. We still have these kind of big complex frameworks. And although we've done very well on things like uh, sharing and making code repurposable by others, other than the original maintainers, uh, I think we're still lacking some maturity around uh, how does our software become portable? How does our libraries become interchangeable? Um, mm-hmm. So for me, the, you know, when I talk about modularity, I talk about these kind of topics in general sense. And then I start talking a little bit about um, how do we become more specific 
in nature about solving these problems. And just for context, you know, people seems to like modular code, right? Like there's no debate about that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anybody goes into their day-to-day -day job and talk about building the next monolith. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think there's a valid debate in terms of monolithic approach to deployment and infrastructure maintenance, but that's separate than writing code and that's separate than how you design your systems. So, you know, from, from a numbers perspective, and this is something, you know, everybody sees every day when they go to npmjs.com, um, we are now at one point. Uh, 1,159,000 packages. And these are just the open source ones. And I'm always curious by that number. I've always been curious about it from before I even joined NPM. Why are there so many packages? Why does the JavaScript community create such a prolific amount of code and software to share? And the analysis that I came up with, and just based on my own personal observations, is that we in the JavaScript community have had a good run of satisfying some of those human requirements, making things so easy to throw away and repurpose, uh, making things so easy for a newcomer to jump in and get on board, uh, making things simple and clean, and building one thing that does one thing very well and, and not be concerned with you know big complex challenges across different domains. Uh, that's why we have so many packages. That's why we have such a big JavaScript community. And that's what made my career. And that's what made a lot of, a lot of other people's career. And it's wonderful. I think the... The challenge, though, and then coming back to our enterprise examples earlier, the challenge is we've solved that in the open source world, but we haven't solved it in a way that informs a method of building software. All of this so far has been about libraries and code packages and patterns around that. But I, don't, I haven't seen it being adopted very widely in, in the way we build software at companies or at work. So the approaches of modularization and whether it's, you know, you want to go down the path of packaging or microservices or any of those topics mm -hmm. or even serverless world today, there's a real pattern here to adopt. And I think, again, taking the JavaScript example, we're in a world where JavaScript runs everywhere. You know, Miles Borens from Google had a talk yesterday at Node.js Interactive where he was talking about universal JavaScript. Universal JavaScript is just a new term that we're talking about where the whole premise is you write once and run anywhere. And we're in a world now where JavaScript is running in a browser, in your server, in Node.js. You can write JavaScript on edge workers, on companies like Cloudflare. You can put them in your databases, even in productivity software like Google Spreadsheets. You can run some app scripts in there. Yeah. You can do that in, I think, in Excel nowadays. If you've gone to NodeConf EU this year, they gave out smartwatches that were just running JavaScript. So that's great. JavaScript is successful. Um, mm -hmm. But what about the portability of those software code and libraries that are being created? What about the developer experience associated with them? Wouldn't it be great? And I think that's the promise of JavaScript of, you know, you can, you can write the same software that can run in your browser and on your smartwatch and in your Excel spreadsheet. But the reality is there's a lot of work involved in getting that to happen. And we're kind of offloading a lot of that work to the developer who's responsible for doing this. But we haven't come up with the patterns yet of how to approach those things. And I think this is where, to me, the Unix philosophy from so many years ago kind of touches on all the things, the key ingredients required to get there. So I don't necessarily have answers in this space, but I love asking the questions so we can have the dialogue and a debate on these conversations. The one pattern I have noticed in terms of modernizing the way we, we, ado we adopt these, these uh, Unix philosophies just so happens to be around package management. It's not because <laughs> I work at NPM and that's kind of my day-to-day -day responsibility, but it's true. Like you've seen the success of things like React, where people are now building design systems and iterating on them at such a large scale and involving not just developers, but now designers and UX designers in this kind of workflow. 
that's becoming more and more attainable. And nowadays you have tools that are meant for designers that are generating the code and generating it in a way that's a package that is shared and distributed in a community within your company or your client's environments right off the bat. So you don't even write, need to write the code anymore. You can just have a designer drag and drop some things. And I think the company's called Framer. Uh, I know other, other folks in the industry are looking at this as well. I think Envision and others are, are playing an interesting part in all of this. But this idea of modularization is beyond just the software and the code. It extends to UX designers. It extends to you know, product design. It extends to every aspect of technology. And I think we, again, in the JavaScript community, we've kind of solved or address that problem in a very efficient way with package management and packages in general, it would be great to start seeing that pattern being adopted more wildly and, you know, more, I don't want to call it standards, but perhaps best practices uh, around these ideas and, and patterns in the, day, in the day-to-day work of people. And I know I've done this before, again, when I mentioned in the, in the enterprise space, when you have a team as large as 450 people, it's, it's not going to be about just publishing a new version and expecting it to work. Uh, there's a lot of workflow involved. There's a lot of operations involved. There's a lot of uh, maintenance and upkeep and analytics involved. So, you know, a design system with one component that has a button in it uh, might have 15 different versions, but the adoption of it is all over the, the map. And we end up spending a lot of our time as, you know, community moderators and architects of the design systems and the companies just on chasing that down and trying to get the adoption going. So the way the software is built is really relying on those patterns, or at least it should become more and more embedded in, in the way those software is being designed, whether it's a monolithic design or a microservices design. Mm-hmm. The other interesting area of this, I mean, I'm using design patterns as an example because it's an easy one to point at, but now we're in the world of serverless. Now we're in the world of literally the function as a service. While you can deploy a big monolithic application as a serverless uh, application and do that, you probably shouldn't. But now more and more, we as software developers, especially in a server-side context, are thinking of smaller units of code that have to be built and orchestrated and talk to each other through an event system to create the result and the output of our product. So again, those modular kind of best practices keep coming back time and time again in all the areas of, our, of the software industry and all the different things that we're doing. I have a lot of kind of questions that I get through the NPM community, oddly enough, from people who are, who are using NPM in embedded systems. And they're asking about best practices of, well, how do we do kind of package management and download big React libraries or, you know, Lodash libraries and run them on these systems because there's not enough memory, there's not enough processing power. And like the answer is perhaps those, those libraries and those tools were not built to support those embedded system challenges. Um, mm-hmm. But the modularization approach allows you to have you know, more nuanced approach of like, I want this part of this library, I want this part of this framework, and I can just then put them together, create a modular pattern where every piece is responsible for its own logic. And, you know, the output of one can help the input of the other and create kind of a workflow chain uh, of how my system is going to be designed and work. And hey, if something doesn't work, maybe I can just throw it away, bring another library in or another part of that module in. And it will still function the same way. I don't have to refactor my entire code base. Mm -hmm. That's the future I want to see. This episode is brought to you by Brave. Big news from the Brave team. Version 1.0 is official. That means our favorite open source, privacy-focused, blazing fast browser is ready for prime time. 
Their brand new iOS app landed just in time for the announcement and the Brave team is celebrating by granting 8 million basic attention tokens to the community. That means when you download the iOS app, you get 20 bat absolutely free. Put it to good use by heading to changelog.com, hitting the triangle icon in the upper right hand corner and flipping us a tip. Do you think there's a useful distinction between module complexity in terms of the internals of a module? So if I give you two functions and they each do one thing well, which uh, they both take a string as an input and one of them downcases that string and the other one returns the sentiment of that string. One of those functions is, is orders of magnitude more complex. I'm not arguing against modularity. I'm just wondering, I know a lot of times there's this flattening of it shouldn't matter what's going on on that side of the API re response. But it seems like it in practice it always does matter. I think it's mm -hmm. it seems like it's useful to have a, a distinction from the a practitioner's perspective of like module what's going on on the other side of that module. I'm curious your thoughts on that. So, the lens I would look at that is if I'm going to be adopting a module regardless of what it's going to be doing, I do want to see what the internals look like. I do want to see the approach they're taking and the processing kind of architecture they're relying on because that might cost me money. In today's world, we're running things like serverless and cloud-based infrastructures. It's by computational processes that I'm paying uh, the cost for. It's no longer mm -hmm. I'm renting a server and you know whether my software is efficient or not, it's rented by hours. That's no longer the case. You're literally paying for the CPU tick and the CPU cycle. If I have two modules or two libraries that are attempting the same outcome, but approaching it from two different perspectives, maybe one will cost me more than the other. And at mm -hmm. scale, that matters. If you think of financial systems and financial transactions where, you know, hypothetical credit card company has to process credit card transactions, you know, every microsecond matters. And not only do they pay the cost of that, but also the customer pays the cost of that. So from a performance perspective, from a system design and architecture perspective, I think that matters. From a pure outcome perspective, it may not. And I think there's a good example of that. If you ever use the Linux kind of, uh, specifically Debian package management systems, you know, this is perhaps a pattern a lot of Linux as desktop operating system folks have gone through where when you want to install a dependency in your system, say Java, you're asked, well, which version of Java do you want? Do you want the Oracle Java or the uh, OpenJDK Java? As a user that I'm not writing code in Java, it's the same to me. I can just say, I don't care, whatever, just pick one. And it works. So there's this idea that, and I think the field in the package management Debian world is called provides. So when the ecosystem creating packages and creating libraries and tools, you can declare that this provides a mail service. This provides the Java JVM. This provides a SQL-like compatible engine. And for the end user, that doesn't matter because the end user can pick and choose the one that they desire, but the end, the end result is the same. The operation is the same because the APIs of those packages, tools, libraries, uh, uh, software, the APIs are the same. The internals might be different, but the APIs are the same. That's why you can have any number of different mail servers uh, that you can install in your Linux environments and Linux servers. You know, the internals might be different, the operations might be different, mm -hmm. but the APIs that they expose are exactly the same. So it becomes a choice of performance, becomes a choice of cost, becomes a choice of impact on your development methods and approach. And I think that will vary. There's no right or wrong answer there. Hmm. I think that's 
keen. I think total cost of ownership is something that everybody should consider when looking to outsource a piece of their application or pull in a dependency or, you know, Mm -hmm. refer to a module that they aren't in control of. And I think probably we don't think about it as holistically and that can tend to get us into trouble. So I think that's a good answer. The total cost of ownership is something I'm always chasing and trying to put a formula around. I don't think it's that simple. But I would love to see a formula around the total cost of ownership of software maintenance and software delivery. But yeah, it's exactly what you said. Like every choice you make, every time you adopt a package or a module, or every time you write a package or a module, even if it's right. internal, even if it's not open source, um, there's a total cost associated with it. Um, because as we were saying earlier, like you may not be in the same company for long. You may be you know, moving to a different team. You might have different interests a year or so from now. So you know, going back to the Unix philosophy there is like, well, what happens to the developer who's going to come after you and has to, you know, inherit this code base and inherit the choices you've made? How easy have you made it for that developer to understand the context, to make it portable so that they can perhaps throw it away and replace it with something they believe to be better and giving them enough context and enough of that decoupling uh, so that they can be free to do so at will uh, rather than being, not to use a negative word, but like being prisons of choices of the past. Right. Worth noting, there is a cost to decoupling. There's a cost to, to, to making something modular. And so that's worth thinking about. Although through time and experience, I can attest to the fact that it's almost always worth it. Um, there are times when it isn't worth it and that's up to, that's subjective. And like you said, it's hard to quantify these things and to like come up with an equation for TCO. Well, there's so many factors, but I think just de- us developers thinking about decisions in terms of total cost of ownership and you know return on investment like these business ideas bringing them to our software i would just say let me add one more thing and i'll pass it to divya is a huge win for open source is it's a lot easier to calculate total cost of ownership when you can inspect the internals of your dependencies and you can say well here's two modules that provide the exact same functionality and I don't have to guess at their cost because I can see the approaches, I can see the software inside of those things, and I can say, well, this one's well factored, it's a pretty you know, simple, straightforward thing, it's well maintained, and so the, I know the long-term cost of that one is likely to be lower than this other one because I can see their internals. Whereas with proprietary software, you, know, you hit an API, a sentiment analysis API provided by a service provider, and you basically are going off of that the reputation of the service provider because you can't see how they went about solving that unless it's also open source. I would argue that that's actually like similar because for example with packages like so I'm I'm all for using packages and like modularizing your code but there's a part of me that's pushing back on the idea of making everything like making a package serve every piece of your code for example which I think you mentioned just the idea of like modular, modularizing at, to the extent of everything being a package, because there tends to be increased complexity with that. Like, sure, your code is very easy to parse because every module is in charge of a specific thing. So if you need time, moment does one thing. If you need like specific Lodash feelings, uh, Lodash methods, that's doing one thing. And th- that's great, but it often adds a lot of complexity to the code because then you're relying on someone else's code to run the thing. And the issue that happens there is, sure, it's open source and you can see for yourself the number of users, the maintainability, and so on. I think oftentimes when I've relied on a package, I I would use Hammer as an example. So Hammer.js I really loved because it allowed for gesture-based interactions with a web app. It was really well used four to five years ago, and then they stopped maintaining it. 
just like randomly. <laughs> and that's really frustrating. And that tends to happen with packages because I'm all for using an NPM package and having someone else deal with that problem. It comes to bite me back when that package is no longer maintained. And there's a lot of dependencies that it relies on that are no longer compatible with dependencies that I have. And so like what we've been talking about, the cost of ownership increases drastically because of that, because I have to maintain and be very mindful of all the packages I'm using, making sure they're all up to date and swapping them in and out, which oftentimes that's not very easy. So if I'm using Redux, for example, and let's assume in like some post-apocalyptic scenario, no one is maintaining Redux anymore and I have to move to something else, then pulling that out becomes a huge cognitive burden because now it's like everything relies on Redux, the architecture is very specific. And so that almost at the beginning when I made that decision, it seemed very easy. But now when I have to maintain and almost look at long-term impacts, it's, it's a lot more work. Mm. So I, I think that's something to take into to mind, which is why I'm, I'm pushing back on this. Like modularity should not always equate package, like putting everything in For a package, sure. right? I think it, yeah. Yeah, I think the, I, I try to avoiding the, use, the, word, the usage of the word package as much as I could. <laughs> I don't know if that slipped in or not. I mean, it is my day job, so it's hard not to slip in. I think it was implied. Yeah, but, but you're, you're absolutely right. Making things modular is, is one thing, and packages and package management is a whole other thing. You can build modular software and just, you know, just put everything in a folder, its own folder, and, and there you go, you got modularity. But the design constraints and how you write that code and the boundaries you create between them is really where modularity comes in. And those decisions as a software developer, building big software, you know, you would have to take into consideration. Now, that said, it just so happens that, you know, packages and package management in general do solve a second tier problem once you've achieved modularity, which is co-chairing and, you know, creating a dependency graph of what is using what library and what module and to what degree am I going to update or not update or keep up to things. And yeah, there's an even bigger cost there of, you know, uh, keeping up and, and operationalizing all of that stuff. The one thing I would say is, luckily, we, that's what robots are here for. And, and we've seen patterns where, you know, with tooling and CI environments and, you know, automation, you know, we can alleviate a lot of that load and make it so that, you know, humans don't need to be doing, doing that stuff and making decisions around it. To a certain degree, you can automate a lot of these things away and making the complexity and therefore the total cost of ownership on it much lower. A good example about this, I don't know, I don't recall who tweeted it, but it was a tweet a while ago where, Somebody in their GitHub uh, had a, a dependency bot come in, notice that there was a vulnerability on the dependency that they're using. So it opened up an issue and another bot came in and made a PR to fix it. And then the CI environment ran to verify the PR. And then another bot came in to merge it. And then the fourth bot came in and celebrated the merge with a GIF and posted it to the, to the thread. <laughs> um, so the, the level of automation there is just very, very meta and very complex. but. Great. Humans were not needed here, right. uh, which means that total cost of ownership is actually nil in theory. Assuming that everything went well. Exactly. Exactly. I think assuming everything went well right. and also like bots are great when you when it's a mindless thing like updating a version. But the moment when it comes to deciding which package to use, I think that's pretty subjective. Because sometimes there have been times where I've been on teams where we would go with a package that for example, isn't as popular, but is very robust um, because of either like from a performance perspective, the size of the bundle is small or, or whatever that may be. Yeah. And I think 
you're pointing rightfully so at the examples of the open source world and the complexity there and the cost of maintainership. Mm -hmm. But I've seen those same examples in closed source code in enterprises across teams and across hundreds of developers. Those same problems exist internally, even if there is no context of a package or a package management. There's like a repo and a team that worked on it at some point, and then that team moved on to other things or team members exchanged and moved on to other teams. And now that maintainership is lost. And then another team mm -hmm. may be relying on that or application may be dependent on that. And now there's an issue or a bug or you know, needs to update. And those challenges become even more complex, in my view, in the, in the closed source space, in the enterprise space, and you know, the things that are not publicly published open source packages because they're even less visible. Or at mm -hmm. least, thankfully, in the open source space, things are visible. Um, you have the choice of taking something, forking it, making changes, and going forward with it. I've had scenarios where there was repos that certain people didn't have access to, and entire teams were blocked because the original team is no longer there, or the original, original maintainer is no longer there. And you know that's an even bigger problem to untangle. Mm -hmm. The same pattern applies, and this goes back to my earlier example about you know I see npm as uniquely positioned in between because we can see those both sides of the world, and the lessons you can take from that you can apply to the other, and vice versa. And I think there's a value exchange there to be had between, you know, how the open source community does things and how teams at enterprises and with closed source software does things. Uh, and, you know, what I was focusing on is more of the modular way of writing code. But again, that leads naturally to things like package management, code sharing, uh, dependency allocation and all those kind of things. There's a lot of boundaries at which this conversation changes its focus a little bit. Like you can think about modularity in the small, right? Like how do I factor my own personal code and how do I write it in such a way that my functions follow the Unix philosophy and then you can start to think about it as a team and like how does this team work together in such a way that I can pass my functions to you and you can use them and vice versa and you don't have to worry about the internals of mine maybe I have a monolith over here you don't have a clue because you have an API call and it works and so that's you being modular but it's me being monolithic and so there's like this weird dichotomy there and then you have what we've been talking about that's why it does weird when you when you switch to packages now which are really just kind of formalized modules in the javascript space mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't necessarily have to be somebody else's code, as, as we're talking about. That could be your own internal packages, and that's just logistics. That's just distribution of your own modular code. But then you go to somebody else's code, right? Now you go to pulling in that somebody else's package, and the jump in risk and in complexity and trust and all these things is a massive chasm between those two things. And most of the time, what most of us are reaching for is for somebody else's code. And so that's why maybe we even just start talking about packages all of a sudden because, well, you're with NPM, but also we think in terms of grabbing somebody's package and, hey, it does what I want. Mm -hmm. Cool. Let's use it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make a meta joke here. Maybe this conversation could be modular as well and modularized. Oh, okay. <laughs> talking about all these different <laughs> things. Yeah, I think there's, you know, in the API space and the, you know, infrastructure design space, we talk a lot about monolithic and serverless and microservices and all that. But there's no real definition of like what is what is a microservice? What is a monolithic system? Like right. does does the collection of microservices equal monolithic? <laughs> right? Like uh, you can you can draw a box around anything and say, well, there you go. This is a microservice. I used to ask people, how small does it have to be? You know, like right. Are there <laughs> nano services next? I know that's actually a buzzword uh, that some people use, but it's it's kind of ridiculous. Well, now we're doing nano front ends, right? Or micro front ends or something like that. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but like, does the collection of micro front ends equal monolithic website? Like, it, it, however you draw the box, again, around a package and the distribution mechanism, right? Because a package at the end of the day is a distribution mechanism and a sharing mechanism. 
you can still achieve the modularity patterns and the kind of best practices that you want to uh, put in place so that other developers and team members uh, can benefit of the software that you're writing. Whether you're shipping it as a monolithic kind of uh, enterprise product or you're shipping it as a package. And I think that's the lesson we should all take away. We kind of cross those boundaries of the conversations quite a lot because of where we are in the open source and JavaScript space in particular. But there's no reason that you can ship a monolithic package and have it be modular on the inside and make it mm. easy to maintain. Well, maybe let's talk practical in terms of achieving modularity. Maybe you would like to write modular software. Maybe you have a big ball of mess on your hands. I think you you hit on it earlier. I don't think very many of us are like, nah, modular is stupid. Like, I don't want to write it that way. But we, that being said, we we all end up with these big spaghetti codes anyways. So it's difficult to do right or to do well or to do it all. I mean, it's a lot easier to just like keep adding imperative things to this. My, my one big main function, just like keep adding functionality right in there. At a certain point, it becomes where it's like unwieldy. But up until that point, it was the smoothest way to get to where I needed to go. And so advice from Uakmad, even Divya on like either how to move to modular software or how like how can you make sure you're writing modular software? What are some best practices or even just advice in that vein? So I, I remember a quote. I don't, I don't recall who was the first person who said this, but I love it because it's, it's psychotic and fun. You know, always code as if the person who ends up maintaining your code is a violent psychopath who knows where you live. <laughs> and, if, and if you live by that standard, then and you want to take do something, you know, take your code base, make it modular, make it maintainable. Maybe not out of fear, but out of empathy to the developers and to the teams that are going to be inheriting that code and working with it. And I think that's the right place to start. Because I know for a fact, I've, I've written a lot of software, a lot, a lot of code over the years, and I'm not maintaining it anymore. It's somebody else's problem somewhere else. And I sometimes think back to that. I'm like, did I make it simple? Did I make it easy enough to be maintained? To your example, did I write everything in one big file and assumed all the methods are going to be called and understood? Or did I break it up and try to put some context around it? And, you know, to me, like, things like documentation play a very big role in our industry that, you know, we tend to joke about it. We tend to talk about developers don't like to write documentation or, you know, documentation is not, you know, the end result or the end goal of a good software. But it really starts and ends with documentation. Whether you're documenting the entire ecosystem of your enterprise architecture that's monolithic or you're documenting the one module, kind of small piece of software that you're sharing with other team members. And just having that empathy of thinking of the other when you're writing code is really where modularity comes a full circle back to me uh, in my mind because you know, I'm not always going to be maintaining this code. That's a given. That's definitely going to happen. So what happens to the person who's going to come after me? And hopefully they're not a violent psychopath who knows where I live. (laughs) (laughs) There is a way you can look at that exact same equation if you're a little more narcissistic or selfish, which is that, yes, eventually somebody else will be maintaining that code, but in the near-term future, that's going to be you. And near-term future you does not have the context that present you has. And so you might be that violent psychopath that is looking back at past self. And so if you are a little bit more like, it has to be about me, well, you're going to have to maintain this for a while. And you're going to be hurting yourself in the long run. And then in the long, long, long run, eventually, assuming your software has value and still continuing to execute years down the road, it will be somebody else's problem. Divya, do you have thoughts on this? No, I I actually agree with your sentiments on that, which is generally whenever I write anything and I try to be as modular, I try to think about it, it tends to be I'm going to be maintaining it because there are times when I write things for open source and I'm like, oh, this would be cool for me to publish on NPM or whatever because it's a 
thing that I figured out and I'm sure other people would benefit. And then I realized that other people are actually using it now <laughs> and I have to maintain it. And that's like, you know, it's a rude awakening because oftentimes I think most developers, this is just an assumption that I have, like to share the things that they build and that's great and all, but the moment someone else depends on it, that's when you really have a huge responsibility on your shoulders because that's something that not only you have to maintain, but like potentially someone else down the road, if you were to give up ownership of that has to maintain. And so it's always on my mind whenever I create something that I publish out in the world and just to create good documentation. I'm someone who likes good documentation because like Jared was saying, I tend to come back to my code a couple of months down the road. And sometimes I don't even remember how to run the thing that I wrote. And it might not even be in working order when I do all the builds and the run and I run it eventually my everything might break. And so that's something to always that I always try to keep in mind that I'm like write notes to myself. I think there have been some code bases where I actually have comments mm -hmm. where it's like note to self, like do this. And those are priceless when you come back. You're like I know. This is like without this I'd be so lost, but with this it's just enough. I can remember it like brings Definitely. everything back to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just like trying to give yourself that little ounce of context. Because it also helps someone else when they are approaching your code and then they look at it and they're like, I have no idea why this function exists. And you might want to, sometimes I just create comments above the function itself and just mention that this function is here for this purpose, or this is the input output. And this is like basically what it does. Um, and then tests are also a really great way for things to run, which I personally use when I'm using other people's tools because I don't know how it works. And like, Sometimes I use RunKit, which is great because like in NPM, if you use RunKit, you can kind of figure out how a library works very quickly without having to download it. But there are times when I'm already deep in the weeds and I want to know what one function does or like the internals of how a library works. And then like when I look at those tests that someone has, has written, it actually shows clearly what specific things do. So I don't have to go super in depth into reading the entire function to understand that. So I think that helps with modularity just to think about, I think sometimes if you do it test driven as well, like it's a really great approach because you're, when you write the test, it's very clear as to what you're trying to achieve. And then when you write that code, it does exactly what you think it should do. And then that's when you stop. You're like, okay, it does exactly one thing. And then now I need to do this other thing. So let me move on to writing something else that maybe takes that output as input. And so it's very imperative, so to speak. I'm so glad you mentioned testing because, um, my controversial opinion about this, which is you should always have 100% test coverage. 100%. 100%. Not for any of the technical reasons, but purely for the human reasons. Because of that, you know, the maintainer is going to come after you because of you want to have empathy to the person, maybe for yourself even, because you're going to come back and say, what on earth was past me thinking? And having the, the testing approach of the code is, the examples are in the test, the code will tell you what it's doing, and the test kind of operate as the narrative of saying, well, this should be doing that at this time, given this context. Um, and, you know, approaching the goal of 100% test coverage is kind of like protecting for that future, right? Um, whether it's for yourself or the other, and just having that empathy to the person after you, it's going to come and not have to reach that edge case or reach that scenario where some code is not tested, but just works. Maybe it's too simple to test, but still, maybe the context is not clear enough. 
So to me, like that's why I look at 100% discovered as a mechanism to enable those kind of best practices, not so much just to achieve the, you know, the bragging rights of saying my code is 100% mm. desktop covered. Uh, so it's just a mechanism for that empathy to the developer after you or to the future self, just to tell yourself, uh, why was this done this way? Well, you can tell a narrative through testing. You can, you know, revisit that story in your head because I do the same thing. I write comments in my code and kind of tell the story through the comments as well. Of This is why I'm doing this here and there. But that, that only takes you so far. The other side of it is like, well, here's how the code should be used. And that's where the tests come in and help you with that. So, you know, between documentation, 100% coverage, uh, and even using automation, because automation is also another mechanism for storytelling. If a contributor comes in, whether, again, internally within the team or from the open source community and wants to make a change or suggests a kind of pull request to you, the automation will tell them a story uh, because the automation would run the unit test, would run the security test, would run some integration tests, perhaps, right? Telling that story is valuable and useful to that maintainer. And again, mm -hmm. for your future self, because I've certainly always come back to things and ask myself, what on earth was I thinking? And there's no way to go back in time and, and remember other than the code telling you and the documentation and the automation and testing telling you that. Huh. Mm -hmm. I'm an advocate for testing, but I don't think in my entire career I've ever reached 100% test coverage. Maybe just at the very beginning, like I've written one function and one test and I'm like, boom, or, you know, uh, enough input, enough tests just to cheating. input that. Well, they say if the best code is no code, then it follows that the best tests are no tests. So just uh, <laughs> chew on that. That's, a, that's definitely an empty pattern, <laughs> for sure. Has to be. Anything else we, we didn't touch on on this episode? Uh, perhaps, you know, one thing I would point out is, you know, we might be influenced by the JavaScript world a lot. Um, I mean, we, this is JS Party after all. Mm -hmm. But there are always lessons and patterns to learn and to adapt from other communities and other ecosystems. And I think, you know, that's one of the fascinating things for me to always go back and look at other ecosystems. Like I mentioned the Debian package management world as an example, because as a user of it, I've used it for years. And now that I'm in the package management world, it's you know good thing to reference and think about. Um, so I'll be interested to hearing from, you know, the ecosystem and the community as well about, you know, what problems are we kind of, trying to solve in the JavaScript world that have already been solved in other ecosystems around modularity, around all these topics that we discussed. And to what degree does it make sense to adapt or adopt uh, some of them? And, and, you know, perhaps like there's always this feeling of there's something out, out, just outside of your purview, but it's right there. But just because you're not looking at it, you may not be aware of it. And I was, I'm curious to see like from the audience and the community, you know, if you know these things or you have some answers, please share them. I'm on Twitter. Ahmed Nasri on Twitter.com. There you go. Talk to Ahmad on Twitter or elsewhere if you have thoughts on these things. Ahmad, thanks so much for joining us. It's been lots of fun. Devia, thanks for hanging out with me. This has been a great conversation. That's our show this week. We will talk to you next time. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party. We record live on Thursdays. Come hang with us. It's a lot of fun. We also take requests. What would you like to hear about on the pod? Holler at us at changelog.com slash request. We're also on Twitter at JS Party FM. We love chatting with listeners. If you haven't yet, upgrade to our master feed. Think of it like a mono repo for Changelog podcasts. Get this show, practical AI, brain science, and everything we produce all in one place. You've got nothing to lose. Please do support our sponsors. They support us. You know Fastly, Rollbar, and Linode all have our back. Thanks to them. When we need music, we summon the Beat Freak, Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.